Hello everyone, hope you all are doing well. I'm really thrilled to have Mohammed Zishan with us today for a discussion on elections and democracy. Mohammed Zishan is a founding partner and editor-in-chief for Freedom Gazette. He is currently a columnist at The Diplomat and Deccan Herald. He has previously worked with United Nations and is a graduate in international affairs from Columbia University. It is a pleasure to have you today with us, Ishan. Thank you for joining. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so moving with our questions, our first question for the day is, uh, US elections have intrigued the people across the world and people have rejoiced the election of Joe Biden as a president-elect. What does this election mean for the world and especially what, it would, what its impact would be on the foreign policy? So, I mean, it's, it's obviously very interesting to see how excited everybody around the world is uh, about this election. Uh, and, and also the U.S. has now seen the largest uh, voter turnout in history. Right. Uh, and even, uh, you know, even though he lost the election, Donald Trump has won more than 70 million votes, uh, which is incredible. He's won more votes than Barack Obama won, and, and, and he's actually won more votes than he won in 2016. So that is, is, is quite phenomenal. Um, I think, you know, in terms of foreign policy, we are going to see a little bit of a return to American, good old American tradition, so to speak. We all know that Donald Trump was, you know, one of those guys who uh, used to do things on a whim. He would pull out of treaties uh, at the drop of a hat. He would, you know, pick fights with all and sundry. Um, he used to hate on his allies, especially in Europe and, and, and so on. Uh, I think that under Joe Biden, a lot of these things are going to get reversed. So, for instance, uh, uh, you know, on uh, multilateral diplomacy, uh, Donald Trump had started to pull the U.S. out of leadership roles in, in, in various uh, forums and, and organizations. Um, he, uh, uh, you know, he also pulled out of the WHO. He cut funding to various U.N. agencies. I think that Joe Biden is going to start to reverse all of these things early on in his, in his term. Mm -hmm. It's also possible that Joe Biden might rejoin some of the uh, you know, multilateral uh, uh, agreements that uh, Donald Trump had, had pulled out of. For instance, the Paris climate deal would probably be the first thing that, that Joe Biden uh, rejoins. Uh, and it's also possible that Joe Biden would, uh, you know, rejoin, uh, you know, the TPP, uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership Trade Agreement. He, he might also rejoin the Iranian nuclear deal because these were agreements that were part of uh, his administration uh, along with Barack Obama uh, before Donald Trump came to power. Now, in terms of what this might mean for India, I think overall this is very good news for India because India has for a very long time uh, you know, enjoyed and free ridden on American influence in, in multilateral organizations. Uh, Indian diplomats do not like to uh, accept this or, or admit it publicly uh, because it goes against their uh, notions of strategic independence. But the fact is, that a lot of the norms and values that America champions on the world stage are norms and values that India has uh, traditionally uh, welcomed as well. Uh, for instance, like the American private sector, the Indian private sector also depends on a set of uh, norms and rules and institutions around the world in order to make sure that their investments are safe and secure in different parts of the world. 
China and Russia don't care about these things because you know their uh, <clears throat> economy is not so dependent on the private sector and uh, to them what matters is more government to government relations rather than a set of broad multilateral international norms uh, which would apply to all uh, you know companies and firms around the world uh, and similarly on issues such as democracy uh, you know india has in 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 recent years been surprisingly uh, vocal uh, i mean if if you take the un democracy fund for instance it was set up by india and the united states jointly uh, and even to this day india remains one of its largest contributors along with the us um so on terms of norms in terms of norms and and rules and institutions around the world uh, you know india agrees with a lot of what the us does and so watching america pull out of its leadership role under donald trump was actually in many ways a big problem for india because it meant that that vacuum was being filled by china and the chinese were bringing a set of uh, rules and norms that uh, uh, you know uh, undermined the way that these international institutions uh, function we've seen that very recently for instance in the way that the who uh, uh, behaved in the early days of the covid-19 pandemic uh, basically towing the line of uh, of of china very unlike how the who Uh, had responded to the SARS epidemic in the early 2000s when you know they even imposed a historic travel ban uh, in and out of china so a lot of these things i think india had issues with and you know chinese leadership in international forums uh, is is clearly not in india's interest and so if 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 america comes back in some sense and and uh, reverses its withdrawal and isolationist policies under joe biden that is very very good news for india that's amazing that's nice to hear actually so when we are discussing democracy and elections i think the case of turkey has really valuable lessons for the world so in your opinion what could india learn from it i mean turkey's situation is uh, clearly quite um, uh, unique i would not say i mean a lot of people are comparing india to turkey but i would say that there are still a number of differences uh turkey of course was a country where uh, secularism and western notions of liberal democracy uh, were somewhat forcibly imposed top down uh, onto uh, a a country which was typically socially conservative and and highly religious uh, it's not saudi arabia but it was still a very conservative muslim society that that turkey was uh and so in some sense when the uh, liberal democratic constitution of western values was was imposed on turkey it was a very foreign thing uh, uh for the turkish people and that's why if you look at turkish history from time to time you had uh, you know recurring military coups because every time the military used to come in uh, uh you know and take power in order to make sure that those secular values and and western liberal principles were upheld and then over a period of time they would leave and then an elected government would come to power and then you would see that the conservative social impulses uh of of the of the turkish people would start getting expressed again uh through the uh, uh, uh through the uh, the elected government now obviously it's very tempting to draw that parallel to india and say well you know very similar things are happening in india we've got a western liberal democratic constitution Uh, it was imposed in some sense top down you know people like jawaharlal nehru and and dr ambedkar had all studied abroad they were not really true blood uh, traditional 
culturally Indian in that sense. Uh, Jawaharlal Nehru himself has often, uh, uh, you know, expressed in his writings and speeches the belief that he was somewhat culturally Western, and you know, he was obviously educated uh, in England. And Mahatma Gandhi himself was educated in England. So a lot of those values in the Indian constitution were obviously borrowed from the West. Uh, but at the same time, I think that uh, even though Indian society in some sense is also socially conservative and, and highly religious, like Turkey, Turkey is in many ways a lot more uh, homogenous than, uh, than India is. Uh, uh, in Turkey, for instance, you would not find uh, the kind of um, uh, uh, you know, prominent minority that the Muslim minority is in India. Uh, Christians, I think, are about 3% of Turkey's population. And the rest of the diversity you see within Turkish society uh, is essentially different sects of the Muslim community themselves. You've got Sunnis, you've got different kinds of Sunnis, you've got Kurds, uh, you know, you've got, so you've got, you've got a variety of Muslims, but they're all predominantly Muslim. But in India, you've got more than 200 million people who are not Hindu. Uh, uh, you know, and, and so therefore there is a larger uh, sort of religious diversity uh, within India. So even if Turkey does end up somehow becoming an Islamist or Muslim democracy, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's more likely that Turkey would manage somehow uh, to survive in that manner. Uh, but India is, is highly unlikely to survive as a religious majoritarian democracy simply because of the amount of diversity that you've got, religiously speaking, within India. Theocratic democracy, uh, so to speak, would not work uh, in India, even if it does in some way work in, in Turkey. Right. So um, when we are talking of democracy, I think we need to talk about media because it is an integral part of a democracy. So do you think like Indian media specifically in past one decade has been um, fulfilling its duties and or is it being distracted? I mean, I would be very careful of um, brushing all of the Indian media in one stroke. Um, or painting them in one stroke. I think that there is a lot of diversity within the Indian media as well. Uh, uh, and uh, the way that the print media behaves is very different from the way that the digital or online media behaves. Uh, and that is very different from the way that the TV media uh, behaves in India today. Uh, I think that until 2014, uh, and, and perhaps even a little after that, there was a certain anti-establishment uh, tilt within uh, all of the Indian media. Uh, and I think that's the way that it should be. I think that all media, regardless of who is in power, should be somewhat anti-establishment. That's not, it doesn't mean that they are being biased. It means that they are asking questions of the government rather than asking questions of everybody else out on the street or, or you know, on the sidelines of politics. People often say, well, you're asking questions of the government. Why are you not asking questions of the opposition? Because the opposition is not in power. Whereas the government is in power and they're the guys who are making the laws and policies for the country. So in some sense, I think that having an anti-establishment media is not in and, it's, uh, in and of itself a bad thing. And India had that until uh, you know, 2014, 2015. I think what's happened since then is that the print media uh, and the online digital media has by and large remained, you know, free and, and active and vociferous and, uh, you know, aggressive even at times. 
uh, in questioning, uh, uh, you know, the government and the establishment. I'm not saying this because, you know, I have differences of opinion with the government. I'm saying this because I think that the media should, regardless of who is in power, be anti-establishment and vociferous in asking questions of the government. And I think even today we see that a large part of the print media and the digital online media remains that way. For instance, the Deccan Herald uh, has this thing called the speak out section, which comes out on the op-ed pages every day. Uh, and it's become very virally popular uh, on the internet. They pick up a quote from one of the government functionaries or you know, even politicians of the opposition sometimes, and then they append uh, a snarky quote somewhat as a counter to that said by somebody else. Uh, Shashi Tharu tweeted one of these, I think, today uh, about, uh, about one of Amit Shah's quotes. So uh, I think in that sense, large parts of, of, of the print media, you know, the Hindu, you know, the Hindustan Times, Deccan Herald, other parts of the English media, and also the vernacular media. Uh, if you look at Tamil media or Tamil newspapers, Malayalam newspapers down south, uh, or you know some Hindu, uh, Hindi newspapers up north as well, you'd find that they continue to be vociferously, aggressively uh, questioning of the government. Uh, but the TV media uh, is, is the one that I really do worry about because I think in many ways they've started to compete for air, uh, airwaves with um, uh, you know, soap operas on, on Hindi television. And so they want to see a certain amount of uh, drama and a lot of that drama, for some reason, seems to be uh, deci decisively pro-government rather than anti-government. And so you, you find that strain of sensationalism that has ruined the TV media by and large. I think Ravish Kumar also did a prime time on the, this as well. <laughs> yeah. so, yes, and I think one of the people who has spoken about this a lot is uh, the guy heading News Laundry. Uh, Abhinandan Sekri. Uh, he has been out and about very vocal about the way that the revenue model of TV media works in India today. Uh, the fact that they have to fight for TRPs and eyeballs, uh, compete with the IPL, compete with uh, you know Hindi soap operas. The IPL is terribly entertaining and interesting. You've got you know uh, super overs happening every other day. How do you make reality uh, and and the real world? As interesting as that, because frankly speaking, the real world is full of nuances. There are two sides to every story. It's not all black and white. And a lot of it is very boring and mundane stuff. It's not House of Cards stuff. It's not IPL stuff. So I think in that sense, the TV media, for you know, because of its revenue model, has uh, in some ways backed itself into a corner. Uh, and it's very difficult to see how they're going to come out of it. Right. So why don't you tell us about your upcoming book that's going to be released in 2021? Yes, it's, it's, uh, it's planned and scheduled to come out in Jan 2021. Uh, the book is titled Flying Blind, India's Quest for Global Leadership. Okay. Uh, and the title in many ways alludes uh, to uh, the core central argument that India needs to have a foreign policy. Many people don't know this, but India doesn't really have a foreign policy. It's not very coherent. Uh, and this was a result of, uh, you know, my travels around the world, the time I spent at the UN, uh, including with the Indian delegation at the UN, at Colombia, uh, and then thereafter, uh, the time I spent in the Middle East, uh, walking through the corridors and decision-making corridors of uh, governments uh, in that part of the world. Um, and what I realized by and large is that it's a cliche, but it's true. India punches below its weight. Now, 
a lot of people think that uh, you know this doesn't matter. They think India's problems are all domestic. Care first about the economy. Migrant workers are dying every day. Fishermen are dying every day. Farmers are committing suicide. Why are you talking about foreign policy? But the fact is that foreign policy affects all of these categories of people in very real ways every day, uh, which people do not realize. And this is the case that I make in my book as well. That when you look around the world, for instance, the Indian passport is one of the weakest passports in the world. And it is unforgivable because of the fact that India is such a very large country and the fact that India calls itself a, an emerging power on the world stage. You, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine why Zimbabweans have more travel freedom around the world than Indians do. Or why people from Tanzania or Sierra Leone are able to go to more countries without visas than Indians are able to do. And this is a big problem because what happens as a result of, of, of these kinds of things is that for one, you know, a lot of uh, uh, aspiring Indian uh, professionals, uh, whether it's in the IT sector or the pharmaceutical sector or the education sector or elsewhere, they're not able to travel and businessmen are not able to travel freely to conduct business and seek employment around the world, unlike a lot of the other countries. And what happens is that a lot of the rich, well-skilled people, when they get the opportunity to go abroad, they end up changing their passport. And this is what we call brain drain in India. And so India is losing out on a lot of skill and talent every year because of the fact that the Indian government does not have as much uh, capability and as much influence around the world. It's not able to stand up for its citizens when they are abducted and killed in Libya and Syria and Yemen. Uh, it's not able to come to the, the, the rescue of uh, very poor labor workers uh, who are uh, laborers who, who live in labor camps and concentration camps uh, in Qatar and in Saudi Arabia and other parts of the Middle East. These are people who are sending back money to very poor families here in India, but they get no help and support and their health is, you know, and, and, and well-being is largely neglected. And we saw this very badly hit Indian laborers in the Gulf during COVID-19. A lot of them had to come back home to nothing and now their families are now back in poverty because they lost that, that you know, stream of income. And all of this is because governments do not treat Indian citizens with the same kind of uh, respect, really speaking, uh, as they do treat you know, uh, citizens from the West. And this is particularly true in the Middle East. So I make the case in the first few pages of my book, including this and several other real world, real life examples from the street, how foreign policy and India's weak global influence is impacting poor people uh, and, and also middle-class people across India, from the big cities to the small towns uh, in Nagpur, in Kadalore, in Tamil Nadu, and so on. Uh, uh, the Tamil fishermen, for instance, who keep you know, uh, getting abducted by the Sri Lankan uh, uh, Navy uh, because they are trying to make a living out of the little that they are able to get. Uh, so uh, I make the case in the first few pages of my book why Indians should care about foreign policy and why India's global, uh, weak global influence is a cause for concern. Then the rest of the book is basically, uh, you know, uh, an, an understanding of Indian foreign policy, uh, uh, you know, uh, the many different dilemmas that Indian foreign policy faces, why we have weak global influence, uh, why is the government not able to command as much respect around the world as the West is able to, it's not all because of the military and so on. There are several other factors that go into these things that I make very clear in my book as well. 
and I also talk about the various big strategic challenges that India faces from China, from the United States, uh, at the global level, at the United Nations, at the uh, multilateral diplomatic level. Uh, and finally, I end my book by giving a few of my ideas and a vision forward for how India can build its global influence, how India can make the lives of its citizens abroad more powerful, uh, more fruitful, more prosperous and more secure, and how it can also develop its own domestic economy uh, by using uh, enhanced and expanded global influence uh, uh, around the world. Um, so that was, that's basically the, the aim of the, and, and objective of the book. I'm not going to give you further details <laughs> yeah. uh, on, on what's in there. Uh, but there are a number of things that came to my notice when I was at the UN, which I found terribly shocking, which the Indian media does not talk about. You, you know, shocking uh, uh, anecdotes and details of, of how Indian foreign policy is inconsistent and why countries around the world look to us, but at the same time uh, are skeptical about our power and influence. Uh, and, and I also quote several global opinion surveys uh, carried out by Pew and Gallup and several other agencies uh, to show how the world looks at India and how people around the world perceive Indian power and Indian strength. And what is India's inherent advantages uh, and, and, uh, you know, and, and how to preserve those advantages and whether India is going in the right direction today uh, and if yes, how we can continue and if not, then how, ca how we can uh, you know, uh, course correct. So that's basically what this book uh, uh, is about. I think I'm putting it into my reading list, like in January. Yes, thank you so much for that. So thank you, Zishan, for joining in with us. It was really delightful and an enriching discussion and looking forward to connect further. Thank you very much, Shani. All the very best.